Glory to Jesus Christ and welcome to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast brought to you by the Theosis Academy and the Orientale Lumen Foundation. In this podcast, we will feature weekly lectures from the late great Metropolitan Callistos of Diaclea. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's recording is taken from Metropolitan Callistos Ware's course, The Philokalia. The lecture itself is titled Divine and Human. If you enjoy the lecture, you can get unlimited access to the course online at theosisacademy.org. Now for Metropolitan Callistus of Diaclea. In this, my fourth talk, I take as my title, The Divine and the Human. In my last address, I spoke about the spiritual journey, and I referred at the end to the highest point in that journey, the experience of God in direct unions. The contemplation of God above language, above images, in which we simply dwell in him and he in us. This is called often in the Philokalia theology, in the true sense of theology as prayer. I would like now to take this up and say a little bit more about the understanding of God in the Philokalia. We could say the approach to God in the Philokalic texts is antinomic. By antinomy, I mean dwelling on two truths, which appear at first sight perhaps to be inconsistent, but which are both of them necessary for our understanding of the truth. Now, in the case of God, the Philokalia emphasizes that God is both unknown and yet well-known, to use the phrase that St. Paul applied to the Christian. God is both transcendent and immanent. God, for the Philokalia, is a mystery beyond all understanding. As the prophet Isaiah says, Truly you are a God who hides yourself. And yet at the same time, God is closer to us than our own heart, more a part of us than our own breathing. God is beyond all being, and yet he is everywhere present and fills all things. So those are the contrasting aspects of God, the antinomic aspects on which the Philokalia places emphasis. On the otherness yet nearness of the eternal. God is higher than anything we can imagine 
and yet he is not distant from us. He is nearer to us than anything we can imagine. Nearness and otherness go together to make up our picture of God. And this is very clear in the different authors of the Philokalia. For example, St. Maximus the Confessor stresses that God, he says, is infinitely transcending the summit of all spiritual knowledge, supremely unknowable, apprehended only by faith in a manner beyond all unknowing. And yet, side by side with this emphasis on divine transcendence, Maximus stresses the possibility of theosis, of deification, of union with God. He says that the saints share with God one and the same energy, a daring phrase. So we have to stress the two aspects of God if we are to enter into the spirit of the Philokalia. Pascal says that truth often consists in affirming two extremes rather than in seeking a colorless compromise between the two. And that is exactly what the Philokalia does over God. St. Gregory Palamas says, though this is not in the Philokalia itself, that it is the mark of a true theologian to say sometimes one thing and sometimes another when both things are true. In the words of Cardinal Newman, theology is saying and unsaying to a positive effect. So we affirm in the Philokalia that we do not and cannot know God, and yet we know him better than we know our own selves. These two things have to be held in balance if we are to understand the wonder, the paradox of a God who has entered into close relations with us humans. Of course, the unknown and unknowable God is revealed above all through the Incarnation in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we can say truly that the Philokalia is indeed a Christ-centered work. That, then, is the basic approach to the divine mystery. And it's worth thinking about the meaning of this word mystery. A mystery in the correct religious sense is not just an enigma, an unsolved puzzle. A mystery is something that is revealed to our understanding, and yet it is never totally revealed 
because it reaches into the depths of the divine reality. To express the presence of God in the world, his nearness as well as his otherness, we have two approaches in the Philokalia. The first is that of Saint Maximus, the Confessor. He speaks of Christ as the Logos. Now, that is a Greek word that uh, cannot easily be translated into English. Logos means thought, reason, and also speech, world. In our English translation of the Philokalia, we therefore kept the Greek word logos. Of course, Christ is, the God is spoken of as logos, above all in the prologue of St. John's Gospel. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then John goes on to speak of the Incarnation. The Logos was made flesh. Now, St. Maximus takes up this idea of God, and more specifically Christ, as Logos. And he says that God, the divine Logos, has imparted Logi, to the whole of creation, logi, words, inner principles. The logi, which all spring from the one divine logos, have been inserted, as it were, into all created things. At the heart of everything created is the divine reality. In one saying, attributed to Christ by the early Christians, they're not actually found in the Gospels. We have the words, lift the stone and you will find me, cut the wood in two and there am I. Now what we discover when we lift the stone and cut the wood in two are the indwelling logi, the inner principles, the spiritual essences of each thing. The logi imparted by the divine logos to all created things are, first of all, what makes each thing to be truly itself, and secondly, what links that thing to God. So all the objects round us and all the persons round us are, as it were, worlds spoken by the divine word, the divine logos. So in this way, Maximus wishes to emphasize that God is not far away, but we encounter him all the time. If God is beyond everything, he's also within everything. A second way of emphasizing this same truth, in a slightly different manner, is the distinction employed by St. Gregory Palamas. 
between the essence of God and his energies. This is an important theme in the Philokalia. Some Western theologians have misunderstood this distinction and have attacked uh, Palamas and other Orthodox writers for making such a distinction within God. They say that it impairs the divine simplicity. We Orthodox do not accept that. God is indeed one, but God is also three. God is Trinity. God is indeed one in his divine essence, in his inner nature, but God also communicates himself to the world in the form of his energies or operations. This is a distinction that goes right back to early Christian writers. St. Basil the Great in the 4th century expresses it in a classic form when he says that God in his essence is beyond our understanding but his energies are revealed to us. So the energies are God's presence in each thing, activating that thing, establishing it in its true nature. So the world is permeated with the glory and grandeur of God. This is what Palamas wished to say when he made this distinction between essence and energies. We know God. We have true communion with him. But yet, we never know God exhaustively. There is always more. And though we are united to God, yet we still remain true persons. Union with God does not destroy our distinctive personal identity, but it makes it all the more vivid. The Christian mystical tradition does not teach absorption in God in the form of an annihilation. No, our personhood is enhanced by our union with God. The closer we are to him, the more we become each one of us distinctively and uniquely ourselves. And to emphasize in this way that there is a union with God without confusion, communion without absorption. Gregory insisted that God's essence is always beyond us, always unknown to us, and yet we know God in his energies. And the energies are not a thing which God confers upon us. They are God himself in action. So whether we speak of Logos and Logi, as Maximus does, or of essence and energies as Palamas does, we are expressing the same truth, that God is beyond and above, but God is also within. Nearness yet otherness. 
what the Philokalia says to us is, your God is too small. It is a book that seeks to evoke our sense of wonder before God. The Philokalia also says, your God is too far off. It seeks to underline that God is truly within us. God is the heart of our hearts. Without this divine presence in the heart of each one of us, we should not exist. So, in this way, God is mystery, but God is also revealed. And the Philokalia uses both forms of theology, the apophatic and the cataphatic. Now, those words which you may not find in your dictionary, unless it's a very good dictionary, are in fact quite simple words. Apophatic is from the Greek word apophasis, meaning negation, and cataphatic is from the Greek word kataphasis, meaning affirmation. Apophatic means saying no, and cataphatic means saying yes. So, apophatic theology says what God is not. God is not any of the things that he is made. God is love, but he is not love as we understand it. God is light, but he is not physical light. So, apophatic consists in denying all your religious statements because they are inadequate. Not because they are false, but because they don't express the fullness of the divine reality. But if we merely talked about God through negations, then we should end up with a kind of spiritual nihilism. And so we balance our apophatic theology with positive statements. God may not be love in quite the way we humans understand it, but nonetheless, what we experience as humans in the form of love is a true reflection of what God is. God is light, yes. God is darkness, yes. Both of these express aspects of the divine reality. And yet, God is not light or darkness, but beyond and above all that we can understand by those terms. We've got to say something about God. Simply to sit and say nothing is by and large unhelpful. But we recognize that all our statements are incomplete. And so we balance our affirmations by negations, our positive statements about God by negative statements about God. And this is what the Philokalia is doing all through its many texts. 
So do not try to form a bland middle-of-the-road ideal of God, but go on affirming, as the Philokalia does, the two extremes, unknown yet well-known, most exalted and yet most intimate to us. Now let's turn from the Philokalic approach to God to the Philokalic understanding of the human person. Now, in many texts in the Philokalia, you will find a sharp body-soul contrast, such as we found, find in the Greek tradition. In Greek philosophy, such as that of Plato. But much more profoundly, the Philokalia does underline the unity of the human person. More specifically, it underlines the fact that our body is good. Yes, we are subject to all kinds of disordered emotions and desires, and we often experience the body as an enemy. That is part of what we mean by saying that we are living in a fallen world. But, fundamentally, the body is God's creation, the body is good, the body is called to be glorified, we Christians do not just believe in the immortality of the soul, we believe in the resurrection of the body. I do not have a body. I am my body, and my body is me. The body describes the total human person from one point of view. The soul describes the total human person from another point of view. And the two are one. Body and soul are not two parts of the one human person, but two ways of looking at human personhood, and they are essentially interdependent. That is the basic approach of the Philokalia. And when you find on its pages harsh statements about the body, they are directed against the body in its fallen sinful state not against the body in its true essence, as created by God. St. Paul says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. And he also says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The the localic approach is fundamentally Pauline. And when we find in the Philokalia sharp negative statements about the body, let us look carefully. Do they refer to the body created by God in its true state? No. They refer to the body as we know it in our daily experience distorted by sin, by our personal sin and by 
inherited original sin. So then, the philocalic view of the human person is basically holistic, unified. We are to see ourselves as a unity of body and soul, more, exact, more exactly a unity of body, soul, and spirit. And in emphasizing this unified character of our personhood, the Philokalia uses a key term, heart, one of the recurrent scriptural texts in the Philokalia, is Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all vigilance. Now, what is meant here by heart? The heart, of course, is an organ within our chest. It is the physical organ of our bodily life. When the heart stops beating, the person is dead. Though actually today I think death is usually defined with reference to the brain rather than the heart. But nonetheless, the heart is obviously central to our physical organism. When you read the Philokalia, it's worth remembering that they, most of the authors there, if not all, did not have any concept of the circulation of the blood. That is, so I understand, really a 17th century discovery in the West. They, we think of the heart as a pump. They thought of the heart as a vessel, a container. And within the heart they believed that there was empty space. Now, the heart is not only a physical organ. The heart, in our popular, ordinary, day-to-day -day usage, is also understood in symbolic terms, and so it is in theology. Today, when people talk about the heart, they mean primarily the emotions, the feelings, the affections. And they make a contrast between the head and the heart. Pascal said, the heart has its reasons which the reason does not understand. The late Duchess of Windsor, entitled her autobiography, The Heart Has Its Reasons. Well, I'm not altogether clear what Pascal meant by the heart. Certainly the Duchess of Windsor meant by the heart the emotions and affections, somewhat wayward emotions and affections, I fear, and that I don't think is what Pascal had in view. But if you turn to the Bible, you will find that the heart is not just feelings, emotions, affections. The heart in the Bible is the moral and spiritual center of the total human person. We think with our heart. 
we make moral decisions with our heart. And so, in Scripture, it is emphasized that evil thoughts come from the heart. The heart, indeed, is a battleground between good and evil, because it is not only the source of evil thoughts, it's also the place where we experience grace, the place where we come face to face with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in the heart and speaks to us from the heart. So, in this way, for Scripture, the heart is an all-embracing symbol of the unity and the spiritual depth of the human person. The heart signifies the human person created in the image of God. The heart, above all, is the place of religious understanding. One of my favorite books is Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And I often keep in mind the words of the little fox in that book. Goodbye, said the fox, and now here is my secret. It is very simple. Only with the heart can one see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Now that is just what Scripture means by the heart, the place of understanding, the place of insight. And this is also the understanding of the heart that we find in the Philokalia, the scriptural view not emotions and affections, but the true person as created in God's image and likeness. The Philokalic writers underline in particular the depth of the heart. The Macarian homilies say that I'm not sure whether this text is in the Philokalia. The heart is an immeasurable abyss. Writers in the Philokalic tradition like to quote Psalm 63, also numbered 64, the heart is deep. In other words, the human person is an unfathomable mystery. Look in particular in Volume 4 of the English edition of the Philokalia, at what St. Gregory Palamas says about the heart, where he speaks of it as the centre of our personhood, the ruling organ, as he calls it. Now, if you work with this notion of the heart, you transcend a simple dichotomy between body and soul because the heart is both a physical and a spiritual reality. Equally, you transcend 
the contrast between head and heart, because it is with the heart that we think and make decisions. The heart, then, is a unifying concept. Macarius says, and this is certainly in the Philokalia, that through the heart, grace passes to the body. And at the same time, in and through the heart, we meet God. So if we are to understand what the human person means, let us read with great care the different passages in the Philokalia which refer to the heart. And we've helped you by providing an analytical index to the Philokalia in our English translation. Prayer is essentially an activity of the heart. Our aim when praying is to enter the heart and to unify the noose or intellect with the heart. St. Gregory of Sinai, following the Macarian homilies, understands the heart in Eucharistic terms. He internalizes the Eucharist, and he speaks of the liturgy of the heart. The heart, he says, is an altar at which the intellect or noose acts as priest, and the intellect offers sacrifice on the altar of the heart. So there you can see how woven together are the concepts of the heart as spiritual center and the Eucharist as the essential element in our Christian life. Now, let us look at a second key concept in the Philokalic Anthropology, and this is a word that I've already mentioned, the noose, N-O-U-S. This we translate in our English Philokalia as intellect. In fact, it is very difficult to find an adequate English word to convey the meaning of the Greek noose. Many people simply translate noose as mind, but that is far too vague and general because the mind can cover any kind of internal activity in human beings. And the noose has a more specific meaning. The translation intellect is perhaps misleading because intellectual to many people means uh, somebody who is scholarly, obscure, and very detached from daily life. And these are not at all the connotations that I would want to read into the word noose. St. Maximus the Confessor, in fact, makes an important distinction 
between, on the one side, the intelligence or the reasoning brain, which he usually calls dianoia, D-I-A-N-O-I-A, and which also is sometimes termed logos, and then on the other side, the loose or intellect. The reasoning brain is indirect and discursive. With our reasoning brain, we frame arguments. We use abstract concepts. And the reasoning brain is external to that of which it treats. It signifies knowledge from the outside. But on the other hand, the noose or intellect is direct. In the Philokalia, it's closely linked with the word for experience, which is pira, P-E-I-R-A. It's also linked with the word perception, eisthesis. It implies a direct vision. We see that something is true, not as a result of understanding the conclusion of an argument. That would be the level of the reasoning brain. We see it as true through an act of immediate insight and intuition. <laughs> to illustrate this distinction between the dianoia or reasoning brain and the noose or intellect, we might think of our uh, human contacts with others. I might say to you, uh, do you know Peter? And you might answer, yes. Tell me about him, I might say. And then you would uh, give a lot of facts about Peter, that he's 45, he's going bald, he's a little overweight, he talks too much, and so on. And then I might say to you, is that all? And you would probably reply, if you were a close friend of Peter, no. There are aspects of his personality that I can't put into words. If you want to know Peter, you must meet him and talk with him, and then you will understand him much better than you can understand him through the description I give. So here you see there's a distinction between knowing facts about a person and knowing a person. When we know a person because we've met him, because he is our friend, then we understand something beyond the facts. There is a kind of touching, his inner reality, which comes only through direct acquaintance. So there's a distinction between knowing about someone and knowing that person. Now, we know about things through our dianoia, our reasoning brain. 
But when we know a person, understanding them through a direct personal affinity, then that is an exercise of the noose or spiritual vision. It's the difference between seeing that something is true and seeing it. And so as regard God, through our reasoning brain we know about God using philosophical theology. But through the noose we know God by prayer, by mystical experience. So the noose offers us a knowledge that is not just external, but involves participation. That's another key concept in the Philokalia, sharing, participation. In Greek, methexis. We share in God, just as we share in one another, through personal contact, through mutual love. So, if we are to understand what the Philokalia means by the human person, we must look not only at the concept of heart, but at the concept of the intellect or noose, the spiritual vision. More particularly, according to the Philokalic perspective, the intellect or noose dwells within the heart. It is, says Macarius, the eye of the heart. Without the noose or intellect, the heart lacks direction and self-knowledge. But without the heart, the noose lacks energy and a sense of desire. The two need to go together. In Orthodox theology in the past, and I'm thinking particularly of the mid-19th century and the 20th century, the key question was ecclesiology. What is the church? And Orthodox were stimulated to reflect on the nature of the church, particularly through their participation in the movement for unity with other Christians. But I believe that now in the 21st century there has been a shift in Orthodox theology. And the key question now is not ecclesiology but anthropology. Not what is the church, but what is the human person? Who am I? What am I? This question is posed to us particularly through modern advances in psychology. And the answer, who am I, what am I, is not at all obvious. Personhood has very wide limits. Perhaps it has no limits at all. Personhood reaches out of time into eternity, and it reaches out of space into infinity. I am an image 
of the unknowable God. And therefore, not only God, but my own personhood is a mystery. But it is a mystery which it is urgently important today that we should explore. Much of the worldwide crisis that we confront is due to a loss of the sense of the value of the human person. And if we are to renew and reaffirm our belief in personhood, then certainly the philokalia can help us. Let us rediscover our personhood by exploring what the philokalia has to say about the heart and about the noose, the spiritual understanding. These are keys that will open many doors. Thank you for listening to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can purchase Metropolitan Callistos' complete course online at theosisacademy.org. We look forward to next week when we will release another lecture from His Eminence. Until then, enjoy your weekend and God bless.